God of power and grace, fill us with the wisdom of your word and the understanding of your spirit, so that we may be your church, a people with dreams and visions at work in all the world. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Our first reading today is from Acts, chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. And this is the English Standard Version. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise, and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation, for his life is taken away from earth? And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? about himself or about someone else. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told them the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. Our Hebrew scripture reading today is from Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through 15. And Genesis chapter 21, verses 1 through 7. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. 
They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. At first read, these two passages from Acts and Genesis don't seem to have a whole lot in common. One is about an apostle evangelizing in the very early days of Christianity. The other one is about Abraham in the days when God was just beginning to reveal the first covenant promises. At least, that's how most of us have been taught to see those passages, one about an apostle and one about the father of our faith. We're given lenses as we grow up in the faith through which to read scripture ways that we're told to read those pages, certain characters that we're told stand out. And that's okay. As we learn and grow, we need help learning how to understand Bible. So we're told stories in particular ways, ways that stand out to us and stick to us for a lifetime. This is called a hermeneutic, and that's your 10-gallon theological, uh, biblical scholar word for the day. And that's not a bad thing in and of itself to have a lens. We're all people with unique stories and backgrounds and cultures and ideas. We just have to be careful that we remain open to seeing scripture in new ways, experiencing it in new ways, growing, learning, changing our minds allowing other people's stories to influence the ways that we see the Bible. So I want you to go on a journey with me together this morning, all the way back to these two narratives. And let's get to know some of the other characters a little better. We know Philip, we know Abraham. That's great. Let's look at the other characters. 
And now we do have angels. Those are characters that both of these narratives have in common. But all they do in this passage, um, or in both of these passages, is to bring a message from God. That's what angels in scripture do. You don't see guardian angels in scripture. You just see messenger angels. One tells Philip to go to Gaza, another, or rather three, come to Abraham and tell him about his son that will be born. And angels are great, but none of us are angels, so we're not going to focus on them. Those aren't the other characters I want you to look at today. So walk with me for a minute in someone else's shoes. Now, at least the way I was always told this story, the Ethiopian eunuch was never actually all that important. He was just some guy who heard the gospel and responded. Philip was the main show. He was the brave evangelist going wherever God told him to go. Philip, great and mighty apostle and evangelist, so powerful that God communicates with him via angel to tell him where his next mission is. And so Philip, faithful and brave preacher that he is, immediately goes to the place. And there he finds a man from Ethiopia, a Jewish man, reading scripture and needing help interpreting it. So Philip obviously uses all of his great apostle wisdom to explain it to this man. This is his in to spread the gospel. And after completing the mission, God swoops the powerful missionary Philip off to his next mission field. But what if we look at this passage through the eyes of a character that usually takes a supporting role at best? If we really dig into it, I think this Ethiopian eunuch who doesn't even get a name in this narrative, he's the really courageous and faithful one. He wasn't without means entirely. He was literate. He had access to scrolls and a chariot, but he was also a complete and total outsider in a very important way. Now, he was Jewish, traveling home from worshiping in Jerusalem, and yet he was a eunuch. He'd probably been castrated as part of his job. Often, male members of royal or important households at the time would be castrated to protect the ladies of the household from rape. And then being a eunuch and having this lower status because of that, that meant he would have been limited in the ways that he was allowed to participate in any religious services and celebrations while he was in Jerusalem doing the good and faithful thing. He was so hungry to learn more about his faith that he brought back this scroll of scripture. This would have been incredibly expensive he spent a lot of money in order to have this access to the scripture. I remember when I was a little kid, we lived about an hour outside of Wichita, and once or twice a year, we would drive into Wichita and go to the giant Christian bookstore there, and I would be so excited about getting new books like The Pilgrim's Progress or The Chronicles of Narnia that I would have all my new books nearly finished by the time we pulled back into the garage at home. That's the excitement and the curiosity that we see in this Ethiopian man of faith. So important, so exciting is the faith of this man who was left to the edges of life, that God sent an angel to tell Philip to go talk to him and help him sort things out. And when Philip explained the gospel message to him that Jesus came so every faithful person, regardless of their upbringing or class or race or station could be made new again, that even he 
one who was viewed as damaged goods, he mattered. He was so moved by this crazy word about his own worth that he immediately asks Philip to baptize him. This man that society said was less than was baptized by an apostle sent by an angel. That's how important he was. There has been, for the record, a Christian community in Ethiopia since the very beginnings of Christianity. Could this man be why? Suddenly Philip takes a little bit of a back seat in this story, doesn't he? From the spread of the early church, I want you to join me in my time machine and go back a little bit further. We're backtracking all the way to Abraham. So Abraham, trying to beat the heat of the day, is resting at the door of his tent, trying to take advantage of both the shade of the tent and the airflow of being outside. And he looks up and he sees that there are three visitors there. Being Abraham, the mighty and righteous, he of course does the hospitable thing and he immediately sets his wife and his servants to having a meal prepared for them. And he invites them to wash the dust of the road off of their feet and stay a while. He, he uh, joins them then for their meal after they have um, washed their feet and the meal has been prepared. And now the way that I was always told this story, Abraham's faith was so great that of course he believed the message of a son coming to him in his old age. But Sarah's faith, it wasn't so great because she laughed out loud when she heard the news. She laughed because she couldn't believe it because her faith was weak. And also it was kind of sneaky of her to be eavesdropping. And then when she's called out for her laughter, she denies that she laughed. It maybe even sounds in that context like she's chided by God for not believing like Abraham did. But like we looked from a different angle with the Ethiopian, let's take a moment to turn this story to Sarah's point of view. Sarah was a Middle Eastern woman thousands of years ago when women had absolutely no rights whatsoever. Their only power in society was their ability to have sons for their husbands. And Sarah didn't even have that power. She'd never been able to get pregnant and carry a child. And now she's reached the change of life as some folks so delicately put it. There's no chance for her to have that one aspect of power. She's the lowest of the low. And we see in scripture how much Abraham was said to love her. It wasn't that she was without kindness or love in her life, but in a time and a place where everyone else would have been looking down on her or ignoring her or talking about her behind her back for not having provided Abraham a son, I'm sure that deep down Abraham's love didn't entirely counter her feelings of worthlessness and being cast aside. So three strangers show up one day out of the blue and when Abraham says to start cooking, Sarah starts cooking. Regardless of how nicely or not nicely he asked, the societal pressure to look like the best wife is strong and she's already failed on that one major point. After baking for the visitors, Sarah is taking a break in the tent while Abraham talks and eats with these three visitors. And 
let's just all remember that tents are not that big. And in the heat of the desert, the farthest reaches of the tent would have been pretty hot right there. So like Abraham at the beginning of the story, Sarah is near the edge of the tent to catch the breeze. She's probably not eavesdropping, but when there's a nearby conversation and you hear your name, you're going to listen to hear what's being said about you. And what she hears is something that sounds too good to be true, so good that she laughs and says, me? That's crazy. Maybe her laughter was uncomfortable, maybe it was delighted, but I don't think that it was a response of faithlessness. I think laughter isn't really an unreasonable or unfaithful response in this situation. I have laughed plenty of times at crazy messages God has told me. God talks crazy sometimes. Sometimes God says to an outcast Ethiopian eunuch that even he is worthy of God's love and attention. Sometimes God says to a woman who's lost all of her social power that she is even worthy of God's love and attention. So if you think about it, God has basically the same crazy message for both of these people. You matter. And while it takes Sarah a while to get on board with it, and the Ethiopian eunuch jumps straight into the waters of baptism, like literally jumps right in, they both have the same initial reaction, this feeling that this, what I'm being told, is too good to be true. Now the world tells us that messages of radical inclusion of all messages that people in the margins of society or those who have less social capital or power than others, the world tells us that those messages are too good to be true. But these twin stories of the Ethiopian eunuch and the barren woman show us that the world doesn't get to decide who matters in God's eyes. I had one of those good hard conversations this week with someone in which they expressed that they have trouble sometimes by feeling overwhelmed in a helpless way when they see things like the protests that we're seeing in our country right now. Systemic racism and bigotry have been woven into the very lining of our country since its institution, since its foundation, and it's a really big problem to tackle. And obviously the sins of systemic racism and bigotry need to be run out of our world, but it can feel hard figuring out where to even start. So here's a place to start. Be Philip. I know. I told you just a few minutes ago to see the story through the other character's eyes, but right now, having seen it through someone else's eyes, I want you to be Philip for those around you. Tell people on the edges they matter. Let those with less social power and capital know that they matter to God and they matter to you. Not just with your words, but whenever possible with your actions as well. Resist the world's message, both the overt and the covert messages, that some people are worth more or less than others. This might look different for different people. We can resist sin in, in various ways. The importance is not how we stand against sin, but that we do so. A friend of mine 
shared a quote uh, this week or last that I found to be really helpful in finding my own place in all of this. She said, resistance is not a one lane highway. Maybe your lane is protesting. Maybe your lane is organizing. Maybe your lane is counseling. Maybe your lane is art activism. Maybe your lane is surviving the day. Do not feel guilty for not occupying every lane. We need all of them. If you have been out in the middle of the protests lately, rock on. Well done. If you are creating resistance art that champions love and inclusion, keep creating. We need your creations. If you are teaching the next generation the hard realities of things like the 1921 massacre in Tulsa or injustices like redlining or educational inequalities, so that we as a society can learn how to stop repeating history, thank you. Young minds need teachers like you. If you are financially supporting the Poor People's Campaign or the ACLU or other rights organizations, keep doing that. You are doing important work too. If this is all new to you and you're just starting to learn about it, thank you for being willing to learn and grow. And please call me for book, movie, documentary, YouTube video recommendations. I have a whole library full at the church. Whatever your lane in resisting the evil of racial injustice in the world, the important part is that you are joining in, however you are equipped and able, in sharing the message that those who society treats as less than have great worth in God's eyes. And that you are living out that message in the way you run your life. The point is not how you live that message. The point is that you are willing to take a moment to see the story through the eyes of someone you might not have thought about making the main character before in order to see how very much they matter to God. Amen.